channel, my name is Lisa Allistway, and on this channel, you will find a variety of inspirational and informational videos. So if that sounds good to you and you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. My guest today is dementia care expert, Tipa Snow. I will be linking her website, Positive Approach to Care, down below in the description box for your reference. Welcome, Tipa. Hey, Lisa, how are you doing today? Here, I'm, here, or here? I'm doing great now that I'm talking with you. <laughs> Yay! So how you are you doing? Here. I'm doing well, but did you catch something? Rather than just say, how are you doing? And expecting, uh, yeah, I'm fine. I went here, here, or here. And sometimes when we're trying to support somebody, it's really important to in for sure, here, here, or here, get your brain to think for a second before it answers me. Yes, most and definitely chit chatting me back. Yes, most definitely. I have been checking out a lot of your videos online and I have to admit you have a gift. You have a gift of communicating and really understanding dementia patients and I'm super impressed by you. And I would oh. like like to just kind of start off with who are you? Can you share a little bit about your background and why you got into dementia care? Well, um, I certainly have had personal experiences, but at the time I didn't realize they were experiences with dementia. My grandfather moved in when I was a kid and it was after my grandmother died. And I didn't realize, none of us realized what he had was dementia because that was like ages ago. Um, we just thought he was getting eccentric and he had COPD and he had black lung disease from working in coal mines. And he was just, you know, he was a little weird and he got a little weirder. Um, but I was good at helping and supporting him, whereas my mom would just get frustrated. So early on, it even seemed like I was just tuned in to what would help. My grandma on the other side and I were always together. So that was another place where I, I got to understand. She later developed Alzheimer's disease. He had probably what we would now call vascular dementia. And I worked with uh, kids with developmental disabilities that were coming out of state institutions when they said, oh, yeah, no, families can have them back. We were wrong. <laughs> it's like, what? And so we kids, where there was a group of us that got together and were supportive and started a Saturday program and an after school program. So uh, I come from a long line of teachers. And I think something about connecting to people and figuring out stuff is just an part of my DNA. I love figuring things out. I'm really curious. So then I went into working in head injury and stroke as an occupational therapist. And I really found my niche with dementia. Fantastic. I mean, not only do you, I mean, you have a way of communicating and getting the message and really helping people understand how sensitive dementia is and how it takes over the body and how to um, really educate people on their caregiving, which we're gonna get into later on. But first, I just wanna talk about defining dementia for the audience. As we all know, it's an umbrella term. Can you touch on what that means? Yeah, and so dementia is not a diagnosis. It's a syndrome, it's a collection of symptoms. And some of the things that are true about everything under that canopy or that umbrella, there, there are like four things that are going to be true if what you have is truly brain destruction. And it, it means your brain is being destroyed, destructed, deconstructed. And so it's got some chemical issues going on and some structural issues going on. So 
the first thing it means that at least two parts of your brain are starting to die. Okay, so it's not just that those two parts are not feeling good or have chemical problems or have scarring. There's, a, there's something happening and those parts are getting less able to do stuff and then gradually becoming unable to do stuff and dying. So the cells in your brain are dying. Um, and it has to be at least in two different areas of the brain to qualify as a dementia. And so the second thing that's true is that it's progressive. It, it keeps going. Once it, once it kicks off, once it starts being there, it, it has this keep going thing. And we have not yet figured out how to turn that off. So once it starts, we don't have an off switch to get it to stop. We just don't. But we also haven't figured out, third thing is that it's chronic. We haven't figured out a way to make it not be present. But the other thing I would say is, well, so is diabetes. And people learn to live pretty well with diabetes, but we can stabilize diabetes. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to figure out right now are, are there ways to try to stabilize some of the symptoms and manage some of the symptoms that people have in areas of support so that maybe the symptoms don't become so problematic in, in how people live. But the fourth thing that's true about all forms of this condition is that they're all ultimately gonna be terminal. If nothing else takes your life, dementia will eventually, because it is chronic, because it is progressive and because it spreads, it will take your life. So it's at this point, the fifth leading cause of death for people over the age of 65 and the 11th leading cause of death for all age groups. So it's not a minor player, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the whole scheme of things. So that's what it means to have a dementia. Okay, very good. Um, so there's different types with Alzheimer's mm -hmm. being the most common. Can you touch a little bit about on what that is and uh, looks like? Yeah, so with Alzheimer's, Dr. Alzheimer's, I mean, so many of these dementias are still named after the doctor that discovered the first person that was living with it. And so Dr. Alzheimer's in the early 1900s identified a woman who had young onset condition. And she had two things after she died, when he looked at her brain, she had two things that were happening. These beta amyloid plaque formations, like gumpy goop that was forming around the cells when he looked under a microscope and neurofibrillary tangles. So normally you have a brain cell and it has lots of branches that go off from it. And what happened to all those branches is they were all twisted and torqued up and then the brain cell died. But those are called neurofibrillary tangles. And those are how pathologies and beta amyloid. So when you combine those two with a certain thing, that grouping of dementias is called Alzheimer's. And its pattern of attack for later life is it'll it'll start in the hippocampal area, learning, memory, wayfinding, or a passage of time awareness. And then it will like to hang out in another, at least one other area, maybe word finding, language area, or maybe impulse control, prefrontal, or maybe um, it will affect emotions and mood um, kind of thing. So you start to see memory problems for new stuff, not old stuff, just new stuff. And you start to see the, oh, the, um, you know what I was talking about, the whatchamacallit, the, um, what, <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> Forgetfulness. <laughs> uh, no, 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 oh. it's fine. You know, that, yeah. you know, the sort of 
um, I can't find a word. I, I laugh a little bit, but you can tell I'm struggling. And, and I also, so I'm having word finding, I'm having memory problems. I say, you know, which way do I turn out of the, out of the grocery store parking lot and get back to the house? Mm. They're like, well, mom, what are you talking about? I'm here at the entrance. I just can't figure out which way do I turn? So it's those kinds of like, Hmm. but it's not consistent. So that's like the Alzheimer's sort of common one. Okay. Um, I was seeing that um, Alzheimer's has early and late onset. And I was shocked to find out that it can show up as early as 25 years old. 19 is the youngest person we've ever had. Um, Yeah. And it's because there are different kinds of, even within Alzheimer's, there's variations. So some people get that type of dementia because they have a certain gene called presenile gene and it runs in their family. And if they get one of those copies, wow. they're marked for getting it young. There's another one that's APOE4, which is another genotype. And if you get two four alleles, you're likely to have a younger onset. Okay. And, and with Alzheimer's, the life expectancy is around eight to 12 years. Is that correct? Of living with symptoms, but you will have had the condition developing in your brain and your brain has been compensating for about five to 10 years before that. Okay. Very good. Yeah. So it's, you've already had it for a while before we start seeing active symptoms because your brain has to change a good bit before your brain can't say, I can't, I can't fix this anymore. I don't, I don't know what's wrong, but I can't use that section anymore. Okay. Very good. Another form of dementia uh, is vascular dementia. Can you say what that is and how it differs from Alzheimer's? Yeah, so in that last one, Lisa, what did I say was was going wrong? Was it was it your brain cells or something else? I mean, were your brain cells changing? Yes. Yeah. This one, what's happening is your blood supply is changing, your nourishment system is changing. So in vascular dementia, it's the blood supply and the oxygen supply and the nourishment supply to your brain that's changing. So anything that affects your heart your respiration, your nourishment, your lungs, those things are the things that put your brain at risk because if your brain doesn't get oxygen and nourishment, you know, it dies. And so it's caused by blood flow to the brain problems. So people with diabetes that's poorly managed, having had strokes, heart conditions, COPD, People with chronic health problems and circulation problems, peripheral vascular disease, they're at very high risk for having vascular disease spread to their brain, just like it spreads to other parts of the body. So your brain is very, very vulnerable to changes in oxygen, changes in nourishment, changes in in waste disposal. So people can develop vascular and it's really happens a lot after strokes. We can also see it for people who have, you know, problems with um, breathing, where after a while, they don't go back to how they were before. They seem to always have a little bit of brain fog, or they, they may lose specific areas of function. But once you've had a stroke, it should stabilize and start to get a little bit better with what's called collateral circulation. You find other ways to get circulation. If you start to see a change in the other direction, um, we need to go, ooh, ooh, 
we think something else is going on here. So uh, vascular dementia can stabilize though for a while. It's called yeah. plateau. Mm -hmm. It can stay the same. Um, you have areas that don't work and other areas that work fine. Um, they have mood shifts. Hey, Lisa, how are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> yeah. Real emotional. Shut up. Why did you ask me that? That you're just an idiot. It's like, whoa. Mm -hmm. So sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, emotional mm -hmm. stuff, or yeah. I don't care. I don't care. Mom, why don't you get up? I, don't, I just don't want apathy. You know, yeah, those are yeah. some common kind of signals yeah. you may be having some yeah. vascular. Okay, um, very good. So a third one, and this one was in the news recently with Robin Williams' death, and that is Lewy body dementia. I'm not even sure he got a proper diagnosis. He for did it, it, which is, yeah. yeah, that was the sad part. If he had had the right diagnosis and the right support for about seven years to 10 years before he finally couldn't handle it anymore, he thought it was him. He thought he was going absolutely off the deep end again, and he couldn't do it anymore. And what he was experiencing all along the way, more than likely, was not straight Parkinson's. He was getting Lewy body disease. And Lewy body dementia is um, a different protein. It's the same protein we see with, with Parkinson's, the nuclein protein. Whereas Parkinson starts with a movement problem often and some facial change with muscle control because it's deep, deep inside the base back here. Lewy body, diffuse Lewy body hits the core of your brain and then the whole cortex. So I often have psychiatric symptoms before I would ever have movement symptoms, except I have falls that we can't quite explain. I see things that aren't there, visual disturbances or hallucinations. I think people have done things that they didn't actually do. My brain makes up stuff. Um, I have problems with sleep. I mean, so one of the hallmarks is insomnia, but also sometimes waking and not realizing you're still sleeping, but you're awake and you're moving around and doing things that you have and you think your dreams are real. So I think you came in and stole out. There are little boys coming up through the, the vents at night. So um, it's a lot of disturbance in how I've been and trying to control all that is exhausting and it comes and it goes. And so I can be absolutely I don't have memory problems the way people with Alzheimer's do. So people get misidentified of having a late life schizophrenia. Yes. Yes. And I've that, noticed that the paranoia, the confusion, the disorientation that happens, especially at night, the symptoms of uh, sundowners where yeah. they're, it's, it's very scary for them. It's scary for them and it's scary for family members because it doesn't make sense and it comes and it goes and it's so hot and cold. We, we call, you know, there's a group out there, we call it the roller coaster because it's just like, holy moly. And I call it the roller coaster with a merry-go-round. Um, mm -hmm. Because the other thing with Lewy body that's really different is 20 years ago, we would have said about 2% of everybody with dementia has Lewy body. Mm -hmm. Current thing is about 30% of everybody with dementia has some Lewy body involved. Wow. That's high. Whoa. Yeah, Dr. Louie. Yeah, so we got yeah. another doctor, just like Dr. Parkinson, Dr. Olson. Is there a genetic component with the Louie body? There might be in some cases, and in other cases, mm -mm. it just happens. Um, it tends, it's interesting. A lot of people with Louie body are really smart, um, also pretty creative people mm -hmm. who live very independent and interesting lives. And so when they start this, people are just like, 
he's getting weirder and weirder. You know, that kind of concept of, whoa, well, that doesn't make any sense. And people will argue. There is nobody there. I don't know what you're talking about. But then smart people start realizing you can't tell people about that stuff. So I can't say anything because you'll put me in psych. And, mm -hmm. and this group is also high risk for medications. This group often can't, it has never been good at taking meds. They've often had really significant reactions to meds of any kind. Mm -hmm. And if they get antipsychotic medications, it can literally make them immobile and they may not be able to recover. Mm -hmm. So it's a black box, high risk kind of condition to notice. And yet, and all too often, people are still misidentifying it. It's the most misidentified and misdiagnosis that we know about. Okay, very good. So those are the three common ones I think most people might have heard of, but there's all these other types of dementia. That's a long list. Would you mind just briefly touching on some of those? Yeah, so the fourth category that we know about is frontal temporal dementia. And it means that your executive decision-making, sort of impulse control, self-awareness, uh, problem-solving, uh, sequencing, initiation, transitions, and ability to work with other people could be the first area of change or your language center. So auditory processing and language. So frontal temporal dementias. Mm -hmm. And then we have, uh, that's a young person's dementia. It's the most common type of young onset. And it's always, almost always missed as a midlife crisis for those people because mm -hmm. they're doing things unexpectedly or saying weird stuff. Um, then we have <clears throat> things, excuse me. <clears throat> and then we have things like chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, Korsakoff, Wernicke's Korsakoff, which is an alcohol related dementia. We have things like uh, Huntington's, which is a genetic dementia that's um, sort of initially starts looking like um, a, a tick in, in, in a weird kind of neurological condition. We have mad cow disease or, you know, crystal Jacobs disease. And we have all kinds, we even have juvenile dementias, mm -hmm. uh, children's dementias. And so there's, at this point, we know probably over 120 forms, mm -hmm. causes, types. So it's complicated, you know, yes. doing this, sort of figuring all this out. Yes. So let me ask you a question, true or false? Is dementia inevitable part of aging? Absolutely not. <laughs> no hesitation. No, absolutely not. About, you know, a half of everybody who lives as long as they live will never, ever have dementia. Now, they may slow down in their thinking, and it may be that they have to work harder to be able to do things. But you know, your body slows down, your brain slows down, but you can still do everything you used to be able to do. The question is, do you want to? Um, so, you know, younger people go, well, she can't do what she used to. And it's like, no, I don't want to do what I used to. I'm different now. Um, but 50% of us will probably experience at some degree and form a brain change that is probably consistent with a dementia or couple of dementias or a dementia plus depression and or anxiety or you know, or chronic illness, dementia, like MS, because you can get MS and then you can develop a dementia secondary to multiple sclerosis or mm -hmm. Parkinson's, you know, there's, there, you know, we're at risk. The older yeah. we get, the higher the risk, but no, it's not inevitable actually okay. at all. Very good. And that's true. I know people who are in their nineties and they're sharp as a tack. They have all their faculties. Yeah. And so, but on the flip side, I know people in their sixties that, yeah 
They're not shoppers attack. Yeah, and there are huge risk factor categories that if we start looking at our risk factors, we can start going, okay, I can't do anything about this one. Genetics, <laughs> get what you get. How I live my life though, that one I have some choices in. And do I want to do things that reduce my risk or is it like, oh, what the heck? Let's, I mean, let's talk George, about those risk factors. Yeah. Can we, yeah. Because I noticed a lot of the risk factors for dementia are similar to the risk factors for heart disease, stroke, like a lot of the other leading causes of death. Yeah. And so one of the things we know that might be a little bit with, different with dementia is social isolation or engagement in life. Because it turns out the more isolated you have yourself become, that actually increases your risk for developing dementia. Not having a social network and using social networking and connecting, communicating is risky for your brain. Your brain is designed to be part of a community. And figuring out how to have social engagements that you enjoy reduces your risk of developing dementia. Allowing yourself to become disengaged or only have social interactions that are stressful, not a healthy behavior for your brain. Mm -hmm. The second one is living in high distress. Mm -hmm. So your stress level, we should all live with a little bit of stress because if we don't stress ourselves a little bit, we don't stay healthy. Mm -hmm. So being sedentary and immobile isn't healthy. You've mm -hmm. got to stress yourself a little bit. So we should have creative opportunities and new things, novel things to engage our brain, but it shouldn't distress us. Mm -hmm. So it challenges. You know, we need to challenge ourselves a little bit. Otherwise, we think we're fine when we're actually degrading and we don't realize that we're losing abilities because we don't use everything we've got. Mm -hmm. The idea of using or losing, that's we want a little stress in our lives. We want to push ourselves a little bit but we don't want to be pushed to the point of pain or absolute discomfort all the time. We've got to have recovery from that. Mm -hmm. The third is that we know that exercise matters. Physical activity matters. The more we sit for greater than three hours at a time, the higher the risk that we're putting on our system. Mm -hmm. We were meant as a system to get up and move. We got two legs and one behind. We use our legs twice as much as our behind to even mm -hmm. that out. But it also means we should have cognitive activity because it's a twofold. So we should do things that activate our body and things that activate our brain. Mm -hmm. So we need to balance the physical with some cognitive and mix and match so that it feels good. So dancing with a partner. Speaking of dancing, that's such a good example because you have to think how to move your feet. And so you're working the physical and the mental at the same time. So it's, it's a good activity. And you've added in the social. So and it is absolutely considered an ideal. And when you're learning some new dance steps with a partner, or you're dancing with a different partner, all of that is using that novel approach to stressing yourself just a little. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And then we have our, our, la our last two mm -hmm. stressors or our last two uh, risk factors. Mm -hmm. One is what you put into yourself. Hydration and nourishment really do matter. Yes. And this last one is sleep. Getting adequate amounts of rest and restoration. And making sure that the restoration is deep enough that it allows the glial cells in your brain, cleaning cells in your brain, to do their job. Yes. Because evidence is, you know, not cleaning your brain well at night, it's not a good habit because it may actually be the catalyst that starts the trigger, that pulls the trigger on dementia. Because we're still mm -hmm. trying to figure out what is this thing that makes it kick in? 
Mm -hmm. it, it is a balance and people need to be aware yeah. how important sleep is in, in lots of different areas of your life. Not only is it a time to repair your physical body, but it also repairs your emotional and mental brain during that rest period. Absolutely. And the other thing is meditation for people that we are finding that giving yourself mindfulness time, giving yourself permission to really work on your mind, even when you're awake, can really resettle your brain because your brain gets a chance to pause, breathe, refocus. And, you know, staring at the screen for long periods of time or working in something like caring. Mm -hmm. And not taking breathers, not coming yeah. up for air for like five minutes. Give your brain a five-minute rest break. Yes. can really recharge batteries. Most definitely. Um, another risk factor I think that's at the forefront because approximately two-thirds of Americans are either overweight or obese. We have an mm. epidemic of this issue. And how is obesity and dementia related? Okay, so we have, it's a twofold. One of the favorite foods of the primitive brain, one of our very favorite foods, fuel sources, is glucose. Glucose. And then we also find comfort in eating things that have fat. Fat and glucose. And then let's add sodium. Mm -hmm. So when you add those three, and your primitive brain really is a survival instinct during times of um of drought, of, of inadequate supply. It's an old primitive thing. And so when I can get it, I want to have it because then it will save me when I don't have it. So if we have plenty all the time and we have lots of available stuff that has high sugar, high salt, and high fat in it, guess what it gives us the ability to do? Store it, store it, store it, which is where obesity comes in. So we store it, but our brain says we don't need that much. You know what? I'll store it as adipose tissue. Then it's available if I need it down the road. I can pull it on board. And so we start building this obesity, but it actually is impacting everything. And so getting out of that loop is really hard because our primitive brain is going, but, but, but what if there's a drought? What if I can't get it? And so this trying to reach rebalance ourselves and get away from the stuff that we put in we don't need food for comfort there are other ways to be comfortable but we got to get out of the passive things like watching stuff rather than doing stuff in and you know watching conversations and listening to things rather than saying okay i've watched this now i'm going to go do something about it. Mm -hmm. that activation system which is hard for us when we aren't supported very well. Mm -hmm. Very good. So this one is an obvious one that sometimes people forget, but they use it as a coping mechanism with the aging <laughs> process and that's drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And that can affect your brain in many ways. Can you touch well, on that? Yeah. So, you know, that when I was saying what we put in matters is so alcohol is the brain's like super candy because it does two things. And it's been doing those two things every time we take it in. One is that it gives us a sugar rush. It's glucose. <laughs> so our brain goes, yeah, I like yeah. that. That was cool. And it numbs. Mm -hmm. It's an it's analgesic. It, it takes away pain. It takes away physical pain. It takes away emotional pain. It takes away spiritual pain. So I don't feel anything. And so if I'm hurting, my brain could say, well, take something that makes you feel better. Oh, my comfort is, oh, and I'll use it as a food substitute. Mm -hmm. 
and it gives me liquid. And, and so my brain goes, yeah, yeah, have some more of that. And if I do something like beer, then I get a little sodium too. <laughs> it's, it's a great kick. And so unfortunately, I start using it as a substitute for having conversations that are a little stressful. Things that I was now feeling uncomfortable with, now I, before I even do it, it's called anticipatory distress. I'm afraid it's going to distress me. I'm worried about it. So I take medication or a, a, a pill or I take a drug or I take my alcohol ahead of time. So when I go into this, I'm actually not as alert, not as aware, not as capable, but then it's like, I need another drink. I can't get through this. And so before I know it, I'm overusing. So whether it's the drugs or prescription, I mean, that's where the opioid crisis came from is I want to feel no pain. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to rush, but it's also where other drugs like smoking is mm -hmm. similar caffeine, you know, like putting in the energy drinks. Oh yeah. My, my rush and my, <sighs> I can do anything right. uh, kind right. of attitude. Um, but we're mm -hmm. actually cheating ourselves yes. because yes. we're, we're really struggling. Yes. And so a, another big risk factor Let's talk about occupations because oh. certain occupations place you at higher risk for dementia. Can you touch uh -huh. on what occupations would be? <laughs> being a caregiver of people living with dementia, um, being in a job or a situation where you could get called at all hours. So people are on call, you know, and they have to respond quickly. Uh, so that would include emergency people, people who work off shifts, people who work night shifts. If it's not a natural tendency and you don't get good sleep in the day, Night shifts are really risky, whether it's a health professional or a public service position or just, you know, a packer in a warehouse. Mm -hmm. um, working in the same job that's the same way day after day after day, and your body is stressed a lot of the time because not only do you have that job, you have the job of parenting or caring, or you have a job where you're responsible for a lot of people's well being. And and it's like air traffic controllers are a great example, or airline pilots, or people who are trying to help other people, but the person they forget to look at is themselves and take care of themselves. So any profession, teachers, are those risks are higher. Researchers, people who are driven, but they have a hard time remembering, but you're human mm -hmm. and you're encased within this shell that you need to care for. Yes, yes. And another huge one is your combat veterans who oh. experience post-traumatic stress syndrome and not even your veterans, just people in general. Maybe they had a traumatic childhood and they have complex uh, post-traumatic syndrome. Can you touch yeah. on that? Yeah. And so what we know is it's, it's trauma-informed care. So we need to really look back with somebody on their life and find out how many trauma events did you experience as yeah. a child, as a young adult, as a, as a person. What events have you been through that traumatized you and got your primitive brain thinking that things that are happening around you are dangerous when they're simply annoying or maybe a little risky, but not to that level, but your brain now perceives things in a different way. Mm -hmm. And because your brain is perceiving this as a high risk situation, it throws cortisol out there like nobody's business and adrenaline and it gives you the rush, but that also means it uses up a lot of glucose. Mm -hmm. And so then you're depleted and then you need to recover, but you don't feel safe. And so then you jam stuff in your mouth really quick so you can get back to it. Mm -hmm. And it puts people 
at high risk for going back in their life in their memory. I mean, they go back like they're there. And that can traumatize the people who are now present because we aren't in a combat situation. We aren't in a, a situation where somebody's trying to harm or rape or take advantage of another person. And yet that person is accusing us of doing that, believes us to be an attacker when what I'm trying to help you do is change your clothing. And now I'm traumatized in care and yet I'm expected to go back. And so I'm now going in, I need you to know, know. And my behavior starts to shift because I feel endangered when in fact, there's not really danger there. There is risk and I need to learn something. But if somebody doesn't help me, I start to go into work with this stomach thing or I can't do this anymore or I'm, I, so, I've got so to have there- when they're triggered back into that trauma, it's like a form of disassociation because yes. they're not in the present reality. And nope. I think as caregivers, you have to remember that that fact right there. Yeah. And one of the most important things for us to do is to give the person space, because even if they slide to the floor, I would rather them slide to the floor than think that I'm attacking them. Mm-hmm. Even if they're, I can back off, let them see both my hands and turn sideways and give them at least six feet of space and go, wow. I really surprised you. I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. And they got to see my hands so they know where they are. And so one of the realities of being in that moment is we develop very limited vision. It's called tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. That when people are in an episode, they can't see the big world. It's either a target or how do I get out of here? Yes. Um, so and it's, it's, it's really the care, caregiver's um, job to deescalate that situation. Absolutely. And one of the bad news for me is that we don't prepare caregivers for that at all. We do not talk about this in terms of this person has been traumatized at some point. It could have been another care situation. It could have been earlier in their life. It could be from childhood. It could be from a marriage or a relationship or from their work. I don't know. But what I can tell you is in this moment, they are not in the present time, in the present place with the present person. So tune into it, back it back, and let's mm-hmm. figure this out. The worst thing you can do is move forward without awareness. Yes. Um, yeah. So we're seeing a rise in dementia. What mm-hmm. is some of the reasons for this rise? Um, we are living longer. That's yeah. one of the main things. We yeah. are living, I mean, we are just living longer. I mean, we used to one die of the, off. One of, the fastest, of things. Yeah, one of the fastest aging groups is 85 and up. Yeah. I mean, but when we had strokes before we died from strokes, now we recover from strokes. We had a heart attack. We recover from a heart attack. We get cancer. Well, no, we don't have cancer anymore. I mean, but there are so many things that we now know how to fix that we are definitely living longer with Mm -hmm. disabilities that we didn't used to have chronic conditions. The second is that we are starting to live highly stressful lives. Um, We live without sleep in the U.S. We are a sleep deprived nation. Uh, kids, teens, adult, young adults, they never have adequate sleep. They have too many ways to be distracted from sleep. And so we're setting kids up with obesity, with diabetes, with, I mean, we've less talked healthy. about it. Mm-hmm. It's less healthy starting in and then your risk goes up. And then we don't have the right support for carers. I am so sorry. Families are not getting really great support for a lot of the work they're doing with family members. Mm-hmm because we haven't prepared family 
or changes that happen, whether it's kid, adolescent, or older changes, mm -hmm. how do I cope with this in a fashion that doesn't do me in? Mm -hmm. um, and we are not preparing one another for interactions that are safe. Yes. Or, yeah. I'm seeing I'm seeing another trend, especially in women and women's health, uh, around menopause. Oh, it yeah. is alarming when your estrogen drops off. And I understand that estrogen receptors are on your brain. And if that's decreasing, we're going to see more and more women with dementia. And yeah. um, that could be misdiagnosed and so on. It almost always is. If it's earlier at change of life, it's always, well, you know, you're going through menopause. It's perimenopause. What do you expect? And it's like, I expect my brain to keep working. So yes. I need some support here. I need you to quit labeling me as going through menopause and let's talk about what I can do, what you can do, what we can do mm -hmm. to keep me better fit for this. Because, mm -hmm. you know, telling me that it's all in my head, it is not all in my head. It is in my system, right. but I could use your help rather than you shaking a finger at me or saying, well, what do you expect? You know, mm -hmm. you're going through menopause. It's like, okay, this is not helpful. Yes. I need yes. to find the right support then. Right. And it's, it's individual to every woman. It, you need to speak to your doctor. It might mean getting on hormone replacement therapy. It might mean another route. So definitely uh, have those conversations and check in with your doctors. But what you for sure need is better support if you're not getting it. Because yes. that when you're talking about a brain fog, mm -hmm. you need to really be able to talk about that and not be put in a box with, well, there should be a baseline at that point. We yes. should be doing baseline measures and measuring off the baseline to say, ooh, you know what? I want us to try something a little more aggressive here because you are absolutely right. You're yes. starting to really have issues. Yes. And I, and I know for some women, they do use alcohol during this time to cope. Mm -hmm. And it's probably one of the worst things you can do. Uh, Actually, if you're using more than one of six ounce glasses, you know, if you're doing more than six ounces, we definitely need to have a conversation because mm -hmm. that's the sort of max that most of us should ever consider putting in in a slot. You know, that's yes. it. Yes. Okay. So um, let's move on to some common issues that we see with dementia patients. Mm -hmm. um, I have observed in somebody who had dementia, it's like their personality changed. They became really mean, really rude. Can you talk yeah. about a little bit on that? Okay. So right away, I can tell you, Ooh, they had a lot of insult, a lot of damage in their prefrontal cortex, the executive control session center. So let's say that, you know, I'm going to look at your environment so I can find, I find something in your environment and my brain goes, Ugh, I would never put that in my house. Okay, that was my internal system that said, oh, geez, I would never put that in my house. And instead of simply thinking it and saying, wow, that is a really interesting picture you have on the wall. My brain says exactly what I thought because the filter that says you can think it, but you don't say it because it would hurt somebody. Mm. That's hurtful. Why would you do that? Whatever my brain thought, I say and it's just like, oh, my heavens. And so I say, why do you have that stupid picture up there? And so your experience with me previously was, I would never have said that. And you know what? I'm not saying this. My dementia that's now living there has blocked my ability to not say something that my brain thought about. And, and instead, you go, oh, you don't like my picture. Yeah, I would never put a picture. Oh, so you wouldn't have that picture. Well, I'm from Texas. So mm -hmm. when you learn a new strategy for 
accepting, wow, that was her dementia kicked in right there. You no longer see it as me. You start to recognize that's, that's evidence of her dementia. Mm -hmm. So I need to learn how to cope with that and not take it personally because it really wasn't, it's just whatever my eyes saw. What do you have on your ears? And it's those kind of like, (laughs) what are you talking about? But I noticed something. So people are still noticing things Mm -hmm. because our brain is, uh, it's called reticular activating system. The part of our brain wants to know, is this something I need to pay attention to? Is this something of interest? And so if you look at me, why are you staring at me? And it's like, Mm -hmm. I was making eye contact is what we, I mean, we want to get defensive because it's like, where is this coming from? And learning the art of saying, you're wanting to know why I kept looking at you. Oh, I was listening and watching your face. Mm-hmm. Well, quit doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then I've got to learn to sort of like, you don't like when I look at you straight on. Mm-hmm. And it means they felt like I was watching so carefully and their brain said, she might notice something. Mm-hmm. And I don't want you watching that carefully. I mean, so it's, it's learning about this because it's not that I'm trying to be mean and rude. Mm-hmm. It's that I can't keep the lid on anything I think about mm-hmm. is public knowledge now. So I have a question. This goes back to some of the risk factors. Um, the cluster B personality typically have no empathy or a cold empathy. And yeah. it's oftentimes maybe even deny reality because they're in their false self, not their true self. So do they show more signs of dementia than the general population? Well, it's really interesting because some of those people, that was the mask they wore Mm -hmm. because it was actually a mask. They put it on because the upbringing that they said is you do not show, you don't show people because I learned it from Mm -hmm. the people I grew up with. So when the mask comes off, it's like, Lisa, wow, look at you. I am so glad to see you. And your brain is going, whoa, who is this person? Because I can actually gain in abilities now that my mask is off. Some of who I was underneath starts coming out and people are like, who is this person? This is not my father. My father never was like that. He was cold as an iceberg. And you're like, who is this person? Mm. And on the other hand, we certainly can have people who were lacking in empathy now not give it, I'm just gonna say not give a rat's ass or not give a shit. And they'll say that. And it's like, mm-hmm. dad, well, what do you think? Do you think I, and all of a sudden it becomes more vocal and mm-hmm. it becomes even more harsh mm-hmm. because now I have no ability to just be, well, you need to do whatever you're gonna do and I'll do what I'm gonna do. Now it's not so polite. Now it's more, I'm right, you're wrong. You need to just suck it up. You're just an idiot. I mean, and so I say things even more hurtful than I might have been hard. Now I'm. Now it is even worse. So yeah, it can go either way though. Okay. Um, another thing that I've observed is a craving for things like ice cream. What is that about? <laughs> what does ice cream have? Let's, let's go over Fat, sugar, yes. Yeah. So it's like the ultimate in like, and it, it, it flows in your mouth. So it's like, mm, mm. and for people who like texture, they have a certain kind of ice cream. They like, like mm. certain flavor, but ice cream or sweets in general, classically in most dementias, we see an elevation uh, seeking glucose mm-hmm. and sometimes seeking sodium, but what they aren't interested much anymore in is protein. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, bacon and sausage, sure. Or things that are really salty and flavored, ketchup on everything, you know, like, holy moly. It's that kind of phenomena where my primitive brain is actually driving a lot of what I'm doing um, because it's seeking that stuff. And I think I need it. And yeah, I'll argue yeah. with you that I need it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I will even at the same time say, well, you know, I'm not much for dessert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you just yeah. had two pieces of key lime pie. How can you say that? <laughs> I didn't have two pieces of key lime pie. What are you talking about? Well, look, right. plates. Well, I didn't eat that because the immediate right. recall is gone. <laughs> right, right. Another, another common issue we see is refusing help. Mm. I'm fine. So one of the reasons I do, so how are you doing to do here, here, here? Oh, I'm fine. And I'm looking yeah. at them going, and your shirt is filthy and you have not changed. And oh, look at your teeth. Oh my heavens. I have to recognize right away, boy, zero self-awareness, prefrontal cortex, the ability to look at yourself and know I'm fine. I can handle this or oh, I need help. And so it turns out about half of everybody who develops dementia has an inability to see abilities in this moment compared to how I used to be. So Mm -hmm. I I see myself as just as I used to be. And I simply, it's actually got a medical term called anisognosia, the inability to be self-aware. I I don't have any Mm self-awareness. And so you have to learn how to work around that because I can't fix it and you can't fix it. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what, Lisa? You have on that beautiful blue, that that blazer, that blue one. Do you, you have like a greenish teal one too? Yes. That is my absolute favorite. Is there any chance you would do me a huge favor? I would love to see you in that one. It's, it does something different with your eyes. Yes. So rather than say, Lisa, that is filthy. I am not taking you out of this house with that outfit on. Yeah. I have to learn new strategies to work mm-hmm. around your inability to see your changes. And once you get the pop off, I'm like, Ugh, Lisa, you got something on your back here. Tell you what, I'm going to get a washcloth and just wipe this. I don't know what you what we might have rubbed up against. Here, tell you what, do the front too, just in case, because I do not know what you might have gotten. I know exactly what it is. It's ice cream that you missed and it dripped down your front. Yeah. I don't need to say any of that. I have yeah. to learn the workaround. Right, right. Okay, so one thing I want to really touch on as well is COVID, because with COVID mm-hmm. in the last few years, you had social isolation of the elderly, and that definitely doesn't help their health, but also the long-term effects and why some people are dealing with long haulers and why some people aren't dealing with it. What's what's the deal with that? Yeah, so COVID was a virus that, that in many cases could cross the blood-brain barrier. And that the blood-brain barrier at one point in time we thought was absolutely rigid in inviolate. You know, you just didn't go across the blood-brain barrier. Mm-hmm. And then we found out some things could get through the blood-brain barrier. And one of the things that can get through there are different kinds of viruses sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so people who got COVID and it crossed over and it had brain impact, it got in the deep brain, it got in there and it's manifesting itself with changing the brain. Mm -hmm. It's actually in there. Those people are the ones that appear to be having the significant long haul symptoms that are more cognitive. It also is the are the ones that have the long haul symptoms that are more fatigue oriented. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we know is that we need to be concerned. We don't know, is it going to stabilize? Like it's like having had a stroke and now you're here. And over time we can see a recovery or is it instead the start of a dementia? 
And honestly, we don't know. We know some people, they got COVID, but it didn't actually manifest in their brain at that level. They were, they were sort of immune. It affected their body, but it, and it did not get up to their brain. Mm-hmm. But for many people, it did. And mm-hmm. so we're just starting to really investigate and understand. But the concern is we have the potential that this could not only be chronic, it could be progressive, mm-hmm. in which case it becomes a new form of dementia. And we are seeing some early people who got it before there was even a vaccine, we are starting to see some some evidence that that might be the case in certain individuals with certain risk factors. Okay, very good. Um, So let's let's talk about, um, so there is no cure for dementia. And so we just have treatment. So, Mm -hmm. and it's also lethal. So how does somebody die from dementia? Um, so only at this point in time, only about two out of four people will actually die truly from their dementia. Most 50% of everybody will pass from something else related to their health and their well-being, but not their dementia won't take them out. Something else will. Okay. So the primary end of life things that if you go all the way through dementia, the very end of it will be pneumonias. Um, because your ability to suck, swallow, and breathe is actually a complex task that your brain monitors. And when your brain is so damaged that it can't effectively monitoring suck, swallow, breathe, Mm -hmm. that triad of abilities, you start aspirating, you start getting fluid into your lungs, or you are have no immune system left. Your immune system is managed by your brain. And if your brain can't keep your immune system strong enough, then what happens is you don't have immunity. And so every little cold, every little virus becomes deadly. So people can develop pneumonia that you or I would just get a cold and it'd be done or a cold sore and we would be done. But no, these folks will actually develop a pneumonia. And so they have no immune. So even though we give them medications to get rid of the infection, it comes from Mm -hmm. the other kind of immune system problem will be sepsis. So they get uh, an infection in the oral cavity, in their bladder, in their kidneys, in, you know, in a variety of places, they get infection anywhere and it spreads into the bloodstream and they become septic. And because they don't have the ability to fight, um, they can't survive it. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is the brain, the core of that brain where I said, I want, I need that, that primitive brain, the amygdala area that keeps us eating and, and drinking and peeing and pooping and all the stuff we need to survive. It no longer recognizes hunger and thirst mm-hmm. as survival. And so I'm not hungry. I'm not thirsty. Um, my body and my brain start muscle wasting, sarcopenia. I'm not taking in nourishment. I'm not taking in hydration because mm-hmm. My brain goes, I can't do this anymore, man. Mm -hmm. Can I be done? Mm -hmm. And so we have losing weight is an evidence of it, but losing muscle mass is one of your first indicators that, oh, the brain is deciding it's done. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the difference is I really am not hungry or thirsty. The hard part for us is recognizing the difference between starving to death and dying of thirst and Mm -hmm. people who are starting to die Mm-hmm. and are not hungry and are not thirsty and helping us recognize what it is helps us make better choices of our support because emptying things out actually increases the probability I'll have a smooth transition yes. Um, yes. if I keep tr- if you keep trying to get me to stay here when my body and my brain just can't do it anymore it's harder mm-hmm. so those are truly just straight out 
that's how that happens. Before that, some of the most common causes of late life or even early are falls. Falls are a very lethal phenomena, falls with related injury, head injury, body injury, fractures, um, falls that basically are due to system failure inside. Falling and falling with injury is significant, but we can't, if you keep people from moving, they'll still fall. I mean, now they'll get hurt worse. And so Mm -hmm. keeping people mobile and active, keeping people engaged, um, we also see just not being able to engage in the world around me. I'm getting overwhelmed by the world. I'm so stressed. I'm so distressed. I can't function. My anxiety, my depression, my apathy, those things are making it so I don't, I can't do this. And so I, my world, I, I, I keep hiding and hiding. Mm-hmm. And so being unsupported is in a way that you find acceptable is a, is a progressive kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. So let's touch on the treatment. And I know your organization, A Positive Approach to Care, which is a great uh, name to put on it. Can you talk a little bit about what you do and how you're helping people uh, treat people with dementia? Yeah. So one of our beliefs is until there's a cure, there's care. I mean, I don't speak to the cure. I speak to the care. And so there are a lot of things we can choose to do as supporters or even as a person who's in the beginning sign, has the beginning stages of dementia. I'm starting to develop my own dementia. I have choices to make right now. And if I want to be active in my own care, I have positive choices. I'm going to choose how I'm going to live with dementia. I'm not going to be dying with dementia. I'm going to be living with it. And some of it will be hard and some will be okay. And I'm going to like look around and see how do I build my own support? And if I'm a carer, someone who really cares, I need to develop new skills to meet the brain changes. I got to develop brain change and body change to map up or I'm going to get overwhelmed by this. Mm-hmm. We teach some really specific techniques and strategies that tend to be helpful when you have failure in certain parts of the brain and abilities in other parts of the brain. So when you recognize something, try this. When you notice that, let's go with this or this. Let's look at what we can do both for that person, but also for our own well-being. Because when I feel like I'm in control and in connection, my brain goes, I got this. And I'm not pumping cortisol. And I'm not raising my own risk. And I'm building a place in a space where we can be together without overwhelming each other. And that's what we're really about, is creating an inclusive community that knows how to cope with this and is not overwhelmed by it. So, you know, somebody says, have you seen my mother? And they're 92. I go, oh, you're looking for your mom. Did you need her for something? Or do you just want to talk with her? Mm-hmm. Rather than go, she's Looney Tunes. We need to call EMS. It's like, no, you know, she might be the lady who just stepped away from her husband in the grocery store. And if I know how to support her till he finds us, cool. Or if I say, I'm Tipa and you're, Lisa. What's your automatic? Yeah, you automatically say your name. I'm from Eflin, North Carolina, and you're from Texas. Oh my heavens, you're from Texas. And now my brain is adding up. She's in Eflin, North Carolina. She's from Texas. I bet she's visiting somebody. So I can use my capacity to support where we are. And I don't need to panic and go, 911, I need to call the police. I don't know what's going on with this lady. Mm-hmm. She must have escaped somewhere. I mean, No, she's just lost in time and in place and in ability. And I can hold my own here for a minute until we figure this out. Yes. And I think it's real important to uh, check out your channel because you have so much, a wealth of information that 
when we look at our healthcare system, we look at our doctors and the care, it's so limited. It's so, um, it's, it's not comprehensive. And a lot of times people are just falling through the cracks. So I highly recommend you, your website, your channel, because you really are providing a service that there's a gap out there. We hear that a lot. We hear when I found your tips, I tried it and put it, I mean, I mean, we have people who literally say we saved their lives because they were in such a state, they didn't know what they were going to do. And, you know, you saved my relationship with my husband. Um, people really get in miserable places because we simply do not prepare them for the possibility that they'll encounter dementia in the life they live with somebody they really care about or somebody they run across. Mm-hmm. And it's not rocket science, but there is a science and an art and mm-hmm. we can learn it. You know, I have, we have five-year-olds that know how to do it with grace. Mm-hmm. So it's really, if we build it into the fabric, mm-hmm. then we don't have to learn hard lessons. I could be yes. really curious about people and supportive um, in all my relationships. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're coming here to the end of our conversation. Do you have any like last final thoughts about dementia that you'd like to share with the audience? I think when we start seeing dementia as a ever-changing disability, rather than a death sentence or somebody who we can't possibly figure out, we can start to really learn about ourselves and what we can do that will make a difference and also learn about that human being and what they're coping with so we can figure out what's the right match. And it may not be me, may not be here, it may not be now, but it gives us possibilities rather than the brick wall we think we're facing. Um, And I think that's the hardest thing is when you don't know what to do. I don't know what to do to help. It's a scary place to feel like you are when you really do care about somebody and you want to help. Um, And having some options always empowers. And that's what we want to do is empower people. Yes. And I appreciate you taking the negative and making it a positive. So I commend you on your organization and just who you are is amazing. That's why I wanted to do this. And uh, I was like, there's something to this lady. She's, she's got a gift. And I appreciate you being on my channel today. You are so welcome. And thanks for doing what you're doing. It takes an entire community to make this happen. So thanks for doing your part too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And if you guys like this video, be sure to give it a thumbs up and don't forget to leave a comment down below. Uh, Tifa might jump on there and respond. Um, And also don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell to be alerted to when the next video drops. Thanks for watching. Thanks, Tifa. Absolutely. Thank you.